Hello, and welcome to Living It Radio. I'm Kelly DiNardo, here with Amy Pierce Hayden. We are the authors of Living the Sutras, a guide to yoga wisdom beyond the mat. Through our book and this podcast, we aim to make the principles of yoga alive, active, accessible, and personal. On this podcast, we go deeper into the topics we address in the book by talking to compelling people who can help us live an inspired, connected, joyful life. Amy and I are busy preparing for season two of the Living It podcast, which will launch in September. Until then, we'll bring you a mini-sode each month. In fact, we'd love your help with an upcoming one. Do you have questions about yoga, the sutras, something that came up for you while reading our book? We'll be answering several questions in the August mini-sode. You can submit your question through the end of July by recording a voice memo on your phone and emailing it to us at kelly at livingitpodcast.com or by calling 202-525-6653 and leaving a voicemail. Whichever option you choose, please be sure to include your name. Today, we thought we'd do a throwback and share how this podcast came to be. When Living the Sutras first came out, Rosie Acosta interviewed us for her podcast, Radically Love. After the interview, the three of us chatted for another 20 minutes or so, and Rosie said, you really should start your own podcast to explore all of this more. When we got serious about it, Rosie graciously spent an hour on the phone with me helping finesse the concept, answering technical questions, sharing outreach ideas, and just being super supportive and helpful. So today, Rosie has generously agreed to share her interview with us so you can listen in and hear what and who inspired the Living It podcast. Amy, we both just re-listened to the interview. Was there anything we said that you would change? Oh, that's a great question. I actually hadn't listened to it um, probably for maybe, what has it been, like seven or eight months? And I really enjoyed um, some of the things that came up that I hadn't remembered, actually. So I don't know that I would change anything. I was really, I was really re-inspired to hear that the concept we had at the beginning before you and I started our podcast was actually there in the original interview with Rosie that, you know, sometimes when you do some work creatively, it begins to change. And I feel like our original intentions, which were about um, how we look at the world around us, how we can better create balance and how we can make yoga accessible are still um, our goal and still the things that we're exploring in our podcast series. I think so too. Any, any favorite parts? You know, the fun we had, I think, talking to Rosie was probably what made it enjoyable for me to listen to myself, (laughs) (laughs) you know, and to hear things that, uh, that you and I had been discussing. But I think the most exciting practical thing that impressed me after not hearing our conversation for, for so long was a word that I think maybe Rosie used about juxtaposition. And there were so many examples of how you and I have had the exact opposite answers, uh, you know, to the questions <laughs> that Rosie asked us and that we still would get to the same result through our practices. You know, for example, I think we talked to her about how, what are the challenges about our own routine or, you know, what are the, some of the non-negotiables that we have to do in our spiritual practices? And we would laugh because she'd ask us a question that you and I would have a very opposite answer to, yet it still worked for us. And I think that's some of the beauty of the Yoga Sutras is that, 
it doesn't matter which technique or how you get there, but there's a way to get, you know, to yourself and to get to know yourself on the mat and off the mat in a variety of different ways. And it's clear when you listen to us that we didn't come at our practice the same way and we still don't. Right. Okay. So I absolutely love that that was your answer because when I was thinking about this, I was taking notes about what my big takeaway was from it. And I literally wrote down that it was that you and I come to things from the complete opposite perspective, but we get to the same place. Totally. And I I love that we both had that same answer. <laughs> I find that really reassuring because it reminds me that yoga is a living, adaptable practice that in so many ways can meet us where we are both as individuals or in our lives at a given moment. Um, what do you think it is about the practice that makes it work that way? I think that if we look at yoga and the classical approach or reason for yoga, it's for calmness, clarity, peace, balance. And the yogis of the ancient times looked at it as a, a mental practice that, the, that through calming the mind, there, everything else would become steady. And if we can agree that our goal is to be at a greater state of peace or have a greater state of balance, our job then is to figure out where we are, where we are in the moment, what our baseline is, what our tendencies are. And when each of us can look at ourselves individually, then we can apply the different teachings and the different techniques that will bring us into a, a greater state of balance. So I think because the goal is the same, right? The, the work is really for each of us individually to create routines and to uncover the things for us that are most supportive and balancing for us. Right. Well, it's a very, pun intended, it's a very flexible practice, right? So you can be Catholic or Jewish or agnostic. You can be interested in physical asana or not at all, never have any interest in doing a down dog. Um, It's not a dogmatic practice. It's not a dogmatic practice. Yeah, I think there's a lot of room there. One of the things I loved um, when I was listening to it, again, is Rosie's laugh. It is... (laughs) It's like maybe my favorite laugh in the whole world. It's so infectious and very joyful. And you and I have talked a lot about joy in our own practices. So um, it it felt appropriate. There was a sincerity to our joy. And I always think about that with my approach to yoga. I think we've got this idea that it has to be so serious. Yes. But sincerity for me is is the golden ticket to spiritual practice. Like it doesn't have to be serious. There should be. I think our spiritual practices should bring us joy. Right. You know, and if they're not, I don't think it's right. I don't think it's bringing us to a bit a, a greater state of balance or a greater state of harmony with ourselves and the world around us. Right. And so she's a she's such an embodiment of joy and of somebody who has found her niche and knows what she wants to do and how she approaches her life in the world. I mean, for goodness sake, her podcast is called Radically Loved. Right. (laughs) Well, with that, let's throw it to Rosie. We hope you enjoy Rosie's interview with us, which originally aired on her podcast, Radically Loved. On the podcast, Rosie talks to some really interesting folks in the wellness, health, and meditation space. So be sure to check it out at radicallyloved.com. Here's Rosie. relatable and it felt like something that I could actually take in and digest as opposed to it being something so esoteric, um, you know, and I just, I've always wanted to have a book like this and I always kept thinking, I'm like, God, if I, if I could only find, you know, a good sutras book that I could just go and, and just get another example. And, you know, I've been studying the sutras since I was 13 years old. So for me, I'm just like, you know, I've, I've studied all the different, um, the different 
variations and different schools of yoga's translations, but I really honestly and I'm not just saying this because you guys are on, I mean, I read this book and I was like, wow, like finally, this is exactly what I've always wanted. Just something that I can reference to that was real time and really made me feel better about not understanding it all the time. (laughs) Wow. You know, Rosie, that's, if we were writing a book and we did, the topic wasn't even yoga, that's exactly, that's exactly what we hope the reader experiences, whether this is a book on how to tie your shoes. Like (laughs) I want it like, this is how you tie your shoes. This is how you make bread pudding, right? Get three really ripe bananas, you know, (laughs) rather than, um, you know, Without the step-by-step, I think, of recipes, you know. And uh, I'm just going to say that what you said is actually exactly the thoughts I had about 10 years ago in the middle of one of my teacher trainings when I was leading it. And I could just see that my students, I'd give them some homework in the training program, but I could see that they felt unsupported by the, the text they were reading and didn't really know how to what to do with it, how to swallow it. And so the early, early stages of this book for me, um, before I had even met Kelly, were to, was to have that intention and have that be a, a space for students to feel like, okay, I can chew this up and I can do this right now. So that's, I'm so thrilled. Thank yes. you. Oh. And, and I agree. I mean, we, we talk about this all the time. Our goal with the book was to make it modern, accessible, and personal. And for me, you know, and I had Kelly as an anchor in the, to keep, to keep it really, really present for me because I, I didn't want to take away so much of the um, the root, the rawness and the, the roots of yoga mm-hmm. and diminish it. In fact, I wanted, we would go back and forth. I'd yeah. say, Kelly, this, I'm already, I'm already not doing enough. I need to go deeper. And one of the early times we were talking with one of our, I think one of our editors and yeah. I think one of the thoughts was, oh, it's a bit deep. And I said, it is deep. It's yoga. <laughs> you know, like mm-hmm. we can make it accessible, but it's deep. Right. Yeah. So tell me how, why why this particular text there's so many yogic texts but for you for you guys and I'd love to hear both of you individually sort of what your relation is to the yoga sutras and and why this particular text had an effect on your life so Amy you can go first okay so like you maybe not since the age of 13 although I was reading eastern occultism the first book I first book I picked up was yes. be here now when I was oh, about goodness. 12 years old. And I remember opening it and there was something inside of me where the only thing I can say is that I felt like I was home. I thought, oh my God, this is my language. And I didn't really have any exposure to anything Eastern growing up before that. And I came across the book at a friend of mine's house and I was thumbing through it and I just felt like something awakened in me and something made sense to me. And so I started, um, I started practicing yoga, um, in the early, late 80s, rather, on television with Lilius Follin when I was young. And it was the first exposure I had to any physical hatha yoga, any of the asana. Mm-hmm. And I just felt like it made sense to me. And so from the age of like 11, 12, 13, I started looking into Eastern philosophy and occultism. And I pick up, picked up a copy of the sutras when I was 19. And I had been just starting my formal yoga practice with my teacher and reading it, I didn't. I knew that I didn't really know it, much of what was being said, but the application of a systematic approach to something made sense to me. Like I could understand that this was a philosophy that was. I don't know that I knew the word non-dogmatic, but I knew that it wasn't dogmatic. I knew that it was available to any kind of person, and that it was talking about connecting ourselves with something 
that we probably ignore. And that's all I really knew as a, as a young adult. Mm. And so I started studying it and it came up in my first teacher training, which I had done when I was young. I did it in my early twenties. I did my first teacher training. So I was in a different place than I am now in my early forties in relationship to yoga, but it has always been the anchor, um, for me and my spiritual interests, whether it was in Buddhism or Hinduism, I've always gone back to it. Uh, just yesterday we were, um, talking to Andrea Ferretti and we were talking, she said, she has a couple translations of the sutras. And, uh-huh. and I said, you know, I don't think that a lot of us also understand that there are more ways to look at it. As you were saying, I think I have 20 copies of the sutras and how varying they are. Um, but anyway, to answer your question, it's always been an anchor. And, and most of it, the relationship for me came out of starting to become interested in Sanskrit. Yeah. And I would look at certain words and I'd start to feel like, okay, I know this word means truth, or I know this word means non-harm, or I know this word means um, ease or joy. And I started to look at what the translations in different parts of the sutras um, meant in other texts, and it started to make sense to me as a system for for everyday living. Mm-hmm. And so I guess those are the roots, those are the roots for me. Yeah. Mm, Kelly, what about you? I had the exact opposite experience. Right? <laughs> <laughs> And I think, truthfully, the more typical experience. I would agree. Yeah. yeah. So I um, I had a very on-again, off-again physical yoga practice. And I started practicing much more consistently when I was working at USA Today. And I was training for my first um, long-distance run. And I, I went very much for the physical practice. And... I stayed for all the reasons people stay, even though at the time I could not have articulated what those were or, or why I was there. And eventually I went through uh, teacher training and I was first exposed to the sutras in, in this training. And I took the book, I looked at it, I shoved it on a bookshelf and didn't look at it again. I mean, very truthfully, even though I, I understood this was the foundation of what I was doing on the mat and why I was doing what I was doing on the mat was somehow related to this text. I didn't Mm. really get it. Yeah. And I think I started to piece it together little bits at a time with different teachers who made the philosophy more accessible, but it was definitely Amy who made the sutras for me more accessible and, and, relevant in her Dharma talks. And so, and that was like maybe what, 10 years after you were introduced to the sutras, oh, probably 15, 15 years. It's yeah. kind of, I mean, it's really amazing. And I think, I think that's largely because the translations that are available or that I was exposed to for the most part were very academic and scholarly. And I think now having a much better understanding of them, um, I joke that writing this book with Amy was like getting my PhD in the sutras. And so now I think I could tackle some of the existing, existing translations mm-hmm. that are out there in a, in a different way than I, you know, was looking at them. You know, ago. while I was listening to Kelly, I was also, I had another thought too. And that was that there's, we talk a little bit about this, that there's this promise in the sutras of, um, being able to be at peace and there's a promise in the sutras that if you do do the work that you can live your purpose to a greater degree and there's a promise in the yoga sutras that you can live with less suffering and understand the ego and um release habits and patterns live joyfully live joyfully and so 
that I think those promises that I could see and read in there when I was first studying them, that made sense to me. I knew that there was a psychological um, base to uncovering happiness. And that's really what the sutras for, you know, maybe listeners who don't know so much about the yoga sutras, that's really the base. It's like beginning um, a relationship with yourself through understanding how you think and through understanding how you act and a relationship between habits and thoughts. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And so I think if people understand that there's more to yoga and we, you know, with the subtitle is a guide to yoga wisdom beyond the mat. And there's so much, as you know, wisdom on the mat, but then we can begin to find and uncover that what we're seeing in our mind or what we're thinking in our mind on the mat is probably happening off the mat. And that if we can start to notice that there's a way that we can get outside of the things that limit us, you know, um, have self-love, feel like we can be who we want to be and arrive at a better person for ourselves. Yeah. And I feel like so much of this ideology or this philosophy is, is existent in all of the modern new age, you know, self-development sort of understanding of your own processes. I, I feel like anytime I read the latest self-help book or the latest sort of spiritual philosophy of how to live a more, uh, you know, a life with, with more joy and happiness, I see the sutras all, all over it, you know? So, so I think that's quite interesting um, that that you guys both sort of found this as an anchor point, even though you both have different ways of di- you had different understandings or, or different ways to relate to the text, which is also awesome because I feel like it's such a it can be pretty deep. Like like you said before we started recording, um, Amy was talking about how this this book was it was getting deep, but it is deep. so so what were some of the what were some of the the portions of of the book that you guys felt or or where is sort of the heart of the text that you guys found maybe it's the same maybe it's different but I'm curious as to what you guys felt the the sort of meatiness of the text was I think I'll say my answer without without a filling it in so Kelly can think of hers too. I think for me, this is a book about, um, the ego. And, um, to me, that's the meat of it is understanding ego and understanding the difference between who we really are as not only humans as human beings, um, but how spirituality comes into form and has to have a relationship with the ego because each of us have an ego and we're probably, unless we're an, an, incredibly enlightened being, we're going to operate from a place of our individuality that can actually serve us, but also that can limit us. So for me, it's about the exercises in the book, the journaling exercises, the investigation, uh, the self-study is about getting closer to who we are individually so we can actually really uncover our purpose and um, (laughs) live joyfully. It's that word that keeps coming up, but yeah be at ease with ourselves. So for me, it's about learning the difference between the different parts of the way we see ourselves and the way we uphold ourselves. I guess that's the heart. See, I did answer the whole thing. I wasn't going to, but I think, (laughs) I think that's the the quick meat. Well, and it it would even be that way for me, even if it wasn't about specifically a 2000 year old sutra text. Yeah. Kelly, mine, I think is the, the flip side of the same coin. So I think one of the big takeaways in the meat for me was, um, 
was that the divinity runs through all things. So, you know, my, my husband would come home and say, oh, how'd the writing go today? And I said, oh, no problem. We just tackled what is God today. Right? <laughs> <laughs> no um, but in tackling that, um, I think it really clarified some things for me. And I, what I take from the sutras and what I really believe is that there is this thread of divinity of just pure goodness and pure love that runs through all things and all beings. And if you believe that, that informs everything you do. Um, it makes, for me, it makes me feel really connected and supported, especially through life's changes and fluctuations. And it reminds me to just get out of my way sometimes. And I just, that, that simple, yet not so simple <laughs> um, mm-hmm. idea, I think, is really important. And then, and then for me, I think the sutras are saying, okay, how do you, how do you feel that and stay connected to that and get out of your own way enough to feel that consistent, consistently more and more in your everyday life. Even when things go up and even right. when things go down, because right. as we know, they're going to do it. They're going to go up and down. Mm-hmm. Right. So, and in a world where the ego is the centerpiece of how we connect now in the world of technology and social media, how do you guys think we can stay grounded in this, this philosophy and this, this teaching? Uh, for me, it's humility um, and gratitude. I guess those are my two top ones because the minute that I get out of my humility in the sense of not, not being humble in my skill or anything like that or being humble in my ability – but having humility for things I don't know and things I'm not yet capable of and looking to those around me and like Kelly said, and being connected and not knowing that I don't know what's coming next. I think those things keep me really present and that's when things go better Uh, and my ego isn't in the way. And, and then with gratitude, uh, we were talking about this yesterday. It's one of Kelly's favorite sutras, one of mine, but I think it's her top one. The idea of focusing on the positive to flip things around, um, one of the sutras literally says to focus on the opposite, to cultivate an opposite attitude. And I think that's part of the gratitude for me, mm. which is a very modern, very modern scientific thing that we're studying right now is gratitude and happiness. And um, what were we talking yeah. about yesterday? You know, yeah. the, having yeah. that, that actually works. I think those two for me are how to keep the ego at bay. Yeah. You know, and be able to also honor honor what's what we are able to do already right I think one of the takeaways for me is that we're in this age where we think oh I've got to work on me first you do you I'm going to do me first and then everything else will fall into place but what the sutras are actually saying and what the eight limbs suggest is the complete opposite is you know sort out your relationship with the world and with others set your guidelines for what that looks like then set the guidelines for how you are going to treat yourself and behave. Okay, then start moving inward even more. Then you can talk about your body and taking care of yourself and then your breath and then and then meditation. But you're moving outward in. And so I think, I think it's a good reminder to flip the script sometimes. Mm-hmm. Shut off social media or, or maybe it's not shut it off, but how are we engaging with 
people in the world it, through this platform. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't think those rules kind of change. You're, I think this idea of setting guidelines for yourself, whether you follow the, the yamas and niyamas or you set your own personal guidelines, I think having a moral compass like that for how you treat others in the world and how you treat yourself um, is incredibly important. And then I think, again, if you're, if, if what you do informs that, if you've set those guidelines, then who you are on social media or who you are in the grocery store or who you are when somebody cuts you off on the highway, that's all the same. Hmm. Or at least that's what we're aiming for. Mm-hmm. <laughs> that's why we call it a practice. Right. Yeah. <laughs> and, you know, this is so uh, apropos to the thing I talk about all the time because, you know, you teach what you most need to learn. Uh, about balance, about finding that balance and being able to, you know, understand when, when you have those moments of, uh, being able to reflect and, and behave more wisely as opposed to react. Right. Mm -hmm. So, so keeping the balance of going, 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 but also being able to retreat and rest and, and practice self-care, Um, I, I love that, you know, part of the root word balance means to dance, right? So it's that interplay of, of movement. So people, a lot of the time think that balance is, oh, it's got to be equal parts, but it's not right. And so I feel like this particular text and what you guys did with, with this particular guide was so beautifully written and brought together because I really felt that balance. I, and and I'll go back to what I said in the beginning. It made me feel okay about not understanding some of the things even now, you know, because I feel like I, this is still such a rich, rich, uh, philosophy that, you know, even just taking little bits in at a time and, you know, using the reflections that you guys have in the book, um, really helped prompt that discernment that is ultimately also what we're trying to achieve with yoga is to cultivate that discernment. Absolutely. So for, for both of you in, in where you are in your lives, how do you guys find that harmony or how do you guys find that balance in your lives today? <laughs> I don't know why. Mothers of, a t- of toddlers yeah. and a middle school. <laughs> uh, I love that we have balance. <laughs> I definitely know more and more what takes me out of balance. And I yeah. think for me, if I pay more attention to like when I start feeling out of balance, then I know I pay attention to that rock, you know, like, oh, I'm leaning a little far over here more than I necessarily have specific things that I know are going to maintain balance. Because like you said, Rosie, things are, things are changing. Like, you know, it's like, as soon as you figure out this one thing, well, that's, that period is over. Yeah. And now there's a new thing to master, you know, whether or not it in the beginning. So a good friend of mine today, she has a five-year-old and a almost seven-year-old and they both now went to school full time, mm. you know, as of yesterday. And she's mostly been a state. She's an artist and a stay at home mom, but she's like, I thought this day was never coming. You know, she, te- <laughs> she texted me this morning and that's her and that's her world right now. Yeah. You know, and she's like, I like, you're going to be a new woman. And, you know, I had that period before and now I'm in a different one. So I think we're always making these adjustments to, 
to be at a place of balance, which is really, like you said, a dance and a responsive place. Mm -hmm. So I think a lot of it, um, as far as if I look at yoga, you know, the first two limbs, the yamas and niyamas, if I can't, if I'm struggling to uphold my moral code and my moral conduct, it's because I'm off balance. Like, that means I'm not capable because I haven't, I haven't gotten myself into a better place. And so I I think, I mean, that's so modern. It's so modern and it's 2000 years old. Right. And I think these little markers, the text in itself, I think, is here to help us know when we're getting knocked off center Mm. and how to investigate and then what quick actions to take. Like, I think if a reader can find two or three sutras that they're they're in their pocket and they use and pull out, like maybe for someone who falls into negative spiral, maybe that is the sutra. Maybe Mm -hmm. sutra 33 is good. Hold on to... Um, what's positive and, and begin to disregard the negative. Yeah. Or maybe for somebody else, um, understanding that there are states of consciousness that fluctuate um, based upon the lens we're looking through, you know, the state that we're in. Maybe they know, okay, I can recognize right now I'm making an assumption or I can recognize right now that I'm falling into what used to happen. And Patanjali, the codifier of the system, talks just about those things, Yeah. you know, as, as we could use them today. And I, I for you, I mean, do you have routine? I do have routine, but I was going to hop on to something you just said. I, I think I think what's really important is that the practice grows and expands and shrinks with you, with us, as we need it to. And so we actually encourage readers at the end of the book to like read it again, go through the exercises again, um, see how you change, because I do think that it's a very living practice. Um, as far as as for what keeps me balanced. There are a couple of things, um, and they're they're very suture-related. I, I need, I'm, I'm better if I start my day with some sort of physical movement. Sometimes that's yoga. Sometimes it's a walk or running or lifting weights. It could be anything. Um, we, in, in our family, we do um, nightly gratitudes um, instead of bedtime prayers. And doing that with a three-year-old is incredibly grounding because mm. – as an adult, you think, oh, I have to be grateful for this big, grand thing every day. But you know what? He's grateful for time on the playground or ice cream. And it's a reminder that I have all of this amazing abundance abundance of love and just abundance in my life. And so, you know what? Sometimes I'm going to be grateful for this amazing cup of coffee I had today, whatever it might be. And, and doing that with a three-year-old is a great reminder. Um, honestly, like, my gratitudes do not need to go a mile deep. They can be yeah, okay. Um, yeah. So, and then I would. Say, it's interesting because both Kelly and I are. We feel more comfortable being busy. You know, yeah. like we're familiar right. with that. Mm-hmm. And it's interesting that for Kelly, early in the morning, she knows that like coming to one of my more intense practices, or she's got this beautiful gym in her house that she can use. Like for her. That's grounding. And for me, exactly the opposite is. I could keep going. When I get up in the morning, I have a much better day if I sit in front of my, um, I have a little altar in my practice space. If I sit there and just um, don't move and get quiet and already watch how my mind is on its way to figuring out the rest of my life, mm-hmm. then I'm better off because I'm, I'm saying, okay, I'm going to let you go mind. I'm going to watch this go and kind of pay attention to what has my attention. Yeah. But at the same time, go against feeling reactive. Like I, I once was talking to a friend of mine who's a business owner who said, 
how do you know if you're a workaholic? And the number one answer is when you have time off, you, you're so happy so you can get some work done. Yeah. You know, and so that's totally the definition of me. So for oh. me, it's, I'm going to go against it. I'm going to not, I now have this space that I'm going to definitely take and not do anything in. Yeah. And that's grounding for me. It's so funny because my meditation practice is exactly the opposite. The opposite. <laughs> I have a, a, an alert on my calendar uh, for about 5.15, and it all it says is meditation, or meditate, I forget which. And that's my break between work and when the boys come home. Mm-hmm. And I've got to do it at the end of the day. Mm-hmm. That's so funny, at the end of my work day. Uh, do you have a routine, Rosie, that yeah, you do like what do that? You do? Yeah, I do. I have to. It doesn't matter what time zone I'm in because, you know, I, I travel a lot. Um, I have to wake up uh, at between 4.30 and 5.30 in the morning and I have to do my practice. I have to move my body for even like 15, 20 minutes. And then I have to sit and do my practice. And I, 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 that's just my norm. I have to be able to do it. I'm a morning person. So for me, like doing it first thing in the morning, um, it's a non-negotiable. It really yeah. is at this point. I, I can't tell you the last time it didn't happen because it's been that long. That's um, incredible. That's amazing. Yeah. That's incredible. Especially with travel, that's incredible that you have that route. And yeah. don't don't get me wrong. I mean, there are moments where I've you know I can take a nap during the day, so it's not <laughs> like, a, and I go to bed at like eight thirty at night. You know, so for me, it's that that is sort of my my go to. But um, I I just I fear more what I would be like if I didn't. Right. <laughs> then, then the moments where in the morning I wake up and I'm like, oh, it's so warm in bed, especially when I'm next to, when Tori's, you know, if I'm home and, and he's right next to me and I'm just like, oh, it's so warm in here. I don't want to get up. But, you know, I, I've got to do it. It's just, it's part of what I do, you know. I had the lucky fortune of having really incredible early teachers. And um, one of my teachers, Lisa Matkin, um, I had the opportunity to work with, um, with her in her home when I was doing my training and being kind of rooted in uh, the home of, of yogis. And I would come into their home office to do some work. I was my, at this point, I guess I was in my late twenties and mid twenties. And uh, Lisa would look at me and she'd say, you didn't meditate. Go to the (laughs) office upstairs, sit down and meditate. She's like, we can't, we can't work with you. And I learned really early on, like, Oh, my teacher says, you know, like, I'm, I'm not, I'm not all the way there. I have to go meditate. So I think that's like, she's made some deep groove in me. Like, Oh, if I'm going to be a good person, I'm going to go sit. (laughs) Yeah, no, I love that. She could look right at me and see if I was in the, a a clear space. What, because I had done my practice or I hadn't. Wow. Yeah. Yeah, To me. So, and that actually ties into my next question to you both is this, this idea of creating a sustainable ritual you know, I'm sure it, it, and I love hearing sort of the juxtaposition of both of your guys' practices <laughs> because I think it's really, I think it's, it's more often than not, we can always relate to one or the other, but I want to hear from, from you guys as far as what has been the, how important has it been for you both to create a ritual and, you know, for, for teaching this particular text or just your life in general, and you guys both have had really incredible, successful careers as, you know, women entrepreneurs, as yogis. So how, how is a ritual important for, for us and our ability to succeed in life? The first thing I think of 
explaining that to somebody who maybe doesn't have a ritual that they might say isn't a necessary one, like brushing your teeth or taking a shower, one that you one that fills you in a different way, is the analogy of something that needs to get plugged in to be able to be sustained. You know, none of us would ever think that it would be ridiculous that our cell phone would go on working forever without getting charged. And I think ritual is about plugging in. I think ritual, ritual is about charging. And I think because we are beings of free will, we can get away with not having something that we feel recharges us or reconnects us for quite some time without maybe feeling the ramifications on a great level. We're, you know, we are really, really um, sustainable beings. You know, humans can make it through a lot and come back. But in that, until we have tried something that establishes us in plugging back into ourselves and getting reconnected, I don't often think we know that it is missing until we have had it. So if anybody is looking to feel like more present in a very simple day-to-day way, if they're looking to feel more even, um, I think there is no time ever before than now that we're dealing with anxiety and depression, if they want to reduce any of those things, mm-hmm. find a way to plug in. And it, it can it can be anything. Yeah. But I think for me, that's what ritual is. It's having a routine that charges us, that plugs us in, and, um, and maybe as a download too, you know, yeah. like a backup download so that we get into a clearer space. Um, I always say, I say this to my students, we practice so that we remember what we forget. Mm-hmm. You know, and I, that's true for me all of the time. And it happens, maybe the, both of you have experienced this too. Sometimes the days that I feel like, gosh, I have nothing inspiring. I just had a, a fight with my partner or I just wasn't the best mom or I could be kinder to myself. Like, what am I doing? And I go and teach a class and get present. I feel like a whole nother person, you know, and I think teaching does that. Practice does that. And the things that we get so entangled in and caught up in, they're not so powerful and not so strong. That's what ritual is for me. Yeah, I think that's right. It's it's whatever you need to do to not necessarily plug in. I wouldn't necessarily choose that, but that's the wordsmith in me. Maybe just to download and recharge would be mm-hmm. the words. You know, what the is plug in for me is like plugging into divine. Yeah, you know, it's like oh God, I was only. I only plugged into um, the the left wire. Mm-hmm. I'm running. I'm running two dimensionally. I got. I got to plug into the left wire and the right <laughs> wire. Yeah. So that I can be two dimensional. Like, oh, here I am. Only I'm only connecting to the human part of myself. The part that's always up and down and up and down. Yeah. I got to plug into that other part. Yeah. But recharge is nice. So uh, one of the things there are two. They're interrelated. That I loved learning about the sutras is that the last three limbs are essentially describing different depths of meditation. And I feel like uh, an embarrassed yogi to admit how much I struggle with meditation. I mean, Amy knows my hardest pose is still Shavasana. I just Mm. really struggle with that level of of stillness. And so I felt very reassured by that, that that even the yogis thousands of years ago were like, it's okay. Some days you're going to be taken through your to-do list and you're going to have to really work to bring your mind back, and some days you'll fall right into it. And then the other piece that really kind of reassured me and helped my meditation practice massively is what Amy and I jokingly refer to as the or list. And in the book, we call it, it's the section on the antidotes, where Patanjali says, you know, 
the the fastest way to samadhi is through through God, through the divine. For all the rest of you, <laughs> for where every every one of us actually is, yeah, exactly. <laughs> then you've got this, yes. And he would say you can do it through the breath, or you can do it through. Um, the sound of Om, or you can do it through um, thinking about somebody you admire, all these different ways. And so when we were writing the book, I went through and I did all of the things that we suggested. And I found what works for me is a little bit of a combination. And I put on, um, I go to YouTube and I find a chant of Om and I put it on and it's the only thing on my computer and I sit on the other side of the room and I, I work by counting my breath. And that for me right now is what works. And eventually as I calm down, I don't have to count my breath. It's just there. Um, and so that was really helpful for me in creating a ritual of meditation that, that actually worked for me. Um, and I think that that, license what the what the yogis are saying what Patanjali is saying is like find whatever works for you whatever it is if it's a walk in the woods if it's you know singing whatever it might be find the thing that works for you that helps you calm the crazy in your mind and do that consistently that would be my big takeaway I have one final question for you both and well actually I shouldn't say that because there's there's actually like two more (laughs) so as far as ritual in in both of your lives I'm wondering if there's a non-negotiable in there somewhere I'm just curious I probably should have one. <laughs> I, gosh, I probably should have a non-negotiable. I have one. What's and, yours? And poor Amy has heard this a thousand times. We do bedtime gratitudes, and that is non-negotiable. You know, we, we, my husband and I sit with my son. We do our, our goodnight book, and then everybody has to go around and say one thing they're grateful for. And... For me, that just ends the day off the way it should be ended, which is appreciative and very filled with love. And it reframes it reframes the day in a much more positive way and leaves me feeling recharged for the next day. And so I think mm. um, I think that's really a good one. And and as he's getting older, we're adding in more opportunities to share our gratitude. So we now. Um, before we eat, we say, thank you for all the people who brought our food from the ground to our plate. That's our very simple prayer. And finding those moments of gratitude, I'm excited to find more opportunity throughout the day to add them because I think, um, who is it who says, if the only prayer you ever say is thank you, that's the greatest prayer you could ever say. So for me, finding ways to express my gratitude, um, personally to people, privately to people, and then in some shared way is a non-negotiable in my life. Wow. Does coffee count? Yes. (laughs) (laughs) I am often grateful for my coffee. (laughs) That's my superficial um, ritual, ritual, (laughs) non-negotiable. Now, um, I guess for me, Kelly's probably tired of hearing this. Um, It's all about space. And I even have, you know, strong, strong discussions with my partner about it and, and having sacred space. And I don't know that, I don't know that he knows what that really means to me or what 
you know how each of us have our thing, but yeah, it's, yeah. it's, it's about physical space, but it's also about, um, I, I need quiet space. My partner's a dog trainer. And when I met him, he, there were seven dogs in his house, I think. And you know, like two dogs barking is, is, a, can be a lot for me. Uh, so I know that a uh, physical quiet for me each day is really, really important. And I, 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 I guess that's non-negotiable and I journal every day. So I mean, even if I'm making journal notes about, I have a, I have a manifestation journal. I have a literal journal that is more focused on what I'm doing in my physical practice. It's just a marker so I can track what I've been working on. And then I always have like one journal in my, my purse that, um, is ideas that just come in. So I, but I'm, I'm, I think the physical act of me connecting pen to paper is, is, um, very important for me in a different way than it is for Kelly as a profession. Mine yeah. is a little bit about an anchor. Mm. Yeah, I love that. Mm-hmm. Um, so my final question, and this is a question uh, for, for both of you, and it's uh, particularly around why I created this podcast and it's related to yoga as a practice and as a, a spiritual path. So the idea is that we are, radically loved by source, higher power, mother earth, whatever higher power of your understanding, Mm -hmm. that the universe works for us and not against us. Mm -hmm. And we are radically loved and radically supported. So the question is, what do you radically love? And how do you feel radically loved? So you guys can both, it's a two part question. You guys can both answer it. Wow. Okay. That's a tough one. What do we radically love and how are we radically loved? Yes? Yes. Okay. I'm going to totally um, chop up this line from a Keen song. But um, <laughs> that's what I was thinking when you asked that question. There's a line that says, when you really fall in love, you're just falling in love with yourself. And I love that line because we all remember the beginning of any like really exciting relationship when we're, when we're falling in love. And it doesn't matter – it doesn't matter if you miss your plane, your train, your automobile. It doesn't matter if you go without dessert. It doesn't matter if you lose your job when you're in love. Like that trumps everything. And you could it, it uh, you get a little note from the person you're falling in love with, and your day is made. And that line that that line to me means at that moment the other person or those other the others around you that are giving you that kind of love, they've accepted you such a you feel such acceptance right and I think that's I think that is line is totally true it's like we really are only that other person allows us to see that within ourselves and we need other people to see that within ourselves to come back to self but ultimately when we see our greatness I think I think that's radical love Mm. Mm. So I would say because I, it's easy for somebody else to give you permission to be great. Yeah, and I you would know? say I'm gonna I'm gonna not flip side of the same coin like earlier, but kind of expand on that. I feel radically loved by um, family, and it's both the family I was born into and the family I've chosen and married into, but also the family that is that I've chosen that the, that are friends, right? That that might be the word, but they're family. And I feel I'm grateful and very lucky to have uh, an amazing support network and amazing group of friends. And they're my family as well. And I count my four-legged friend who's at our feet right now. Um, that, 
that definitely sustains me. And that's when I feel, I feel radical love towards those people. And I think that is ultimately what is important is our communion with those people, right? If, if the divine runs through all things, then aren't we so lucky to have this particular group? Um, and when we can see that in them, I think that's really important. You know, I'll tag team on that. I think when you talk about the family you choose, mm. you know, you choose that family because you can be vulnerable, you can be who you are, and they give you space to be exactly as you are. And then when you when you receive acceptance from them, that's love. That's radical love. Right. So I think to radically love yourself and somebody else is to have total acceptance of of yourself and who somebody else is. Yeah, when you can be a hot mess about whatever's going on. (laughs) Exactly. If you have people you can be a hot mess in front of, you are radically loved. Totally. Right? Oh, I love that is such a quotable moment. That should be the the tagline to our our season three podcast. This is so great. Um, (laughs) Well, I'm so honored and uh, privileged to be able to talk to you both um again i'm i'm so grateful that you guys created this little wisdom work of art is so amazing thank Uh, you for listening to living it for those of you who want to find out about rosie her podcast radically loved or where she's speaking visit radicallyloved.com and don't forget to send us your yoga questions you can submit your question through the end of july by recording a voice memo on your phone and emailing it to us at kelly at livingitpodcast.com or by calling 202-525-6653 and leaving a voicemail. We'll put both options in the show notes. Amy, before we let everyone go, can you tell us about your retreat in Mexico? Sure. My annual Mexico retreat this year is December 1st through the 8th in the beautiful Yucatan Peninsula. And we begin each day with a two-hour workshop followed by an incredible brunch, then the pool, then the ocean, then the beach, a massage, or a margarita, (laughs) or a walk in the village. Come reset and relax with me. Uh, For more information, you can visit tantramadison.com. That sounds amazing. We hope you enjoyed this episode. We're so excited to keep doing this. Please share it with your friends. Message us on Instagram at Kelly Donardo and at Amy Pierce Hayden. Email us through our website, livingitpodcast.com. Subscribe in iTunes, write a review, all of the things. We love doing this, so please help us continue to keep the podcast going. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening.